And what I'm going to do in my part of this week is I'm going to talk about what in my mind are at least some, by no means all, I'm not capable of that, but I want to talk about at least some of what I think are the essentials in thinking through a biblical way of thinking about people's lives. Some central ideas that are going to seem very obvious to some of you. Some very essential core ideas that define the way of thinking that, from my point of view, is pivotal to all biblical efforts to move into people's lives. And I'm going to talk about five of them tonight by way of introduction after we take a break. This week, you've all traveled a lot, so I just want to have a nice, light, easy beginning. And, um... Yeah... I just want to give you five, five thoughts, and I don't want to claim that these are anything close to any final five thoughts. There's probably ten better ones, but I want to give you five thoughts that, at least in my thinking now, um, provide some framework for, for thinking through what counselors need to think through. Some things that I think we just need to keep in our minds very clearly that are very, very easy to forget under the pressures of being a counselor. And I presume that the reason that most of you folks are here is many of you are not professional counselors, many of you are in other professions, and you're uh, the kind of people, though I presume, that are actively involved in other people's lives. Whether professionally or on a lay level, whatever, it makes no difference to me. I just hope that there's a meaningful level of community, and you're hoping that a week like this can, 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 can suggest some encouraging ways to move in community, to help people who are struggling with things, to move in good directions. And um, when you're involved in people's lives, you all know this, and many of you can say it better than I, because some of you are more involved in folks' lives than I am. You know that there are a tremendous number of pressures that happen very subtly inside of your soul that, that make you get off course just a little bit. And you all know the old analogy that when the plane leaves New York heading for L.A., if it's off just one degree, it ends up a whole long way away from Los Angeles. And uh, we're never going to get it quite right. I don't think we're going to be able to define anything finally definitive. But, but, but maybe there are a couple of anchor points. Maybe there's a couple of basic uh, things that can be said that can serve us as reliable anchors. Now, as I give you these five things, these five thoughts, I'm presuming um, a lot of basic theology. Obviously, the anchor point for all of our lives is that Christ is God, and we're sinners, and we're saved by the blood, and heaven's coming up. And I'm assuming all that sort of thing. I'm assuming all of our the basic tenets of the Christian faith. I'm just assuming that. And now with that as our very bottom line, without which there's nothing, then when we think about moving into meaningful community and talking to people about their lives and making our lives known to others, what are some very key thoughts? Well, let me give you five. First one will sound cryptic to you, then I'll explain it. There's no way out, only a way forward. There is no way out, only a way forward. That's not original with me. I'll tell you my source in just a moment. But let me explain what I mean by this first thought. There's no way out, only a way forward. What I want to suggest is the thought that's very, very obvious to most of us but that the counseling hour often, or the counseling experience, working with people in community, often tends to erode this basic thought, and that is that um, whatever maturity is, whatever we define as maturity, it has nothing to do with less problems. 
different problems, I'll grant you that. Different problems, but I would argue it has nothing to do with fewer problems. I had a very humbling experience about two weeks ago. <clears throat> Rachel and I were in Philadelphia doing a seminar. Dan was there, of course, and doing a second weekend of IBC in Philadelphia. And I was invited to speak to a, um, an organization in Philadelphia called Harvest. It's an organization that's a, a very solidly evangelical Christian organization, for which I have tons of respect, and outreach to the homosexual community in Philadelphia. And I was asked to speak at their banquet. And um, Rachel and I and a good friend Richard went down to Philadelphia on Friday night a couple weeks ago to speak at this banquet. It was to begin at 7 o'clock. We got there a little bit early, and I asked the, my host, I said, well, when will I get on? You all been to banquets? You know how they work? And he said, oh, this banquet usually goes well over three hours. I'm going, <laughs> you know, I'm last. Everybody will be thrilled to have me get up front. So the banquet began, and it, um, um, it wasn't the best food I've ever had. But it was probably one of the best banquets I've ever been to in my life. Uh, the, 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 the music was great. It was really unbelievable. But what made the evening were five testimonies. The first testimony, or one of the, not the first, but one of the testimonies was from a married couple that got up front and the fellow told the story. He said that um, all my life, up until age 20, <clears throat> I had homosexual urges. But I never acted on them. I restrained them. Never gave in to them. But I always had this thought, and I would bet you that everyone in this room has a similar thought, maybe about a different category, but a similar thought. And that is this, that... If I could indulge in some certain fantasy, then I would know a level of pleasure available no place else. If God were to change the rules and say, your particular interest is now okay, our response would be, yes, God, yeah, you know. Now you're into my joy, finally. So at age 20, when he was away at college, he began to give in to all of his fantasies. He wasn't a believer. And he yielded to every fantasy he could think of. And for four years in college, he went into every homosexual activity he could think of. And, um, and it was wonderful for a time. There are pleasures in sin for a season. He met a woman, another student in college, who was a lesbian. And the two of them buddied up. And they would go out and party all the time. They'd go to all the gay bars, and he'd pick up a guy, and she'd pick up a girl. Um, they had no sexual relationship. He was homosexual. She was lesbian. Like a couple of heterosexual guys going out to bars and picking up girls. Same kind of thing. For four years, they had this friendship-buddy relationship. And then, um, after college, their ways parted, and they had nothing but a party relationship. So she went over here, and he went over here, and lost all contact for about six or seven years. And during those six or seven years, he um, continued involved in his homosexual lifestyle. He got a good job. He made a lot of money. He became a real yuppie type who had very mature homosexual relationships and got very involved. And, and after a while, it just became apparent that his soul was not only dying, it was dead. And there was just nothing there. And somebody reached out. It's a long story. I'll make it short. With the gospel, he became a Christian. Within several weeks of him becoming a Christian and giving up the homosexual way of life, he gets a phone call one night, and it's from his high school buddy, the lesbian woman. And she's calling him after six years of no contact, after college graduation. And she said to him on the phone, um, I'm calling to say goodbye. I'm saying goodbye to everybody who's meant something to me in my life. I'm going to take my life. I'm going to kill myself. It's not worth living. I want to say goodbye to you. So he says he's been saved for about two weeks. 
And they're the ones that know how to witness right, you know? <laughs> and he said, well, before you kill yourself, try Jesus. And her response was, try Jesus? You know, what is... And so he gave, him, gave her the gospel as best he could, and she got saved. Now they're married, missionaries in Romania. And that was the couple up front at the banquet. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know... Why'd you all laugh then? I'd love to know. I really would. Um, But I'm sitting there thinking, you know, God does do some things. There are some problems that God really does help us overcome. And I think that's wonderful. Another woman got up. She was a woman who had a long lesbian history. She was perhaps about 30. And she got behind the podium there at the banquet and gave her testimony. Each person was supposed to take 10 minutes. They all took about 30. And nobody complained. It was, it was an electrifying evening from my point of view. It was a wonderful evening. She got up and she told the story of her lesbianism and how she became a Christian. And then she said, with uh, just choking in her voice, as she was standing there dressed in a lovely dress and you know, earrings and makeup and all this, and she said, you know, I can't tell you what a miracle it is to tell you that tonight I'm so glad that I feel feminine. Just a wonderful thing. Now, I say all that simply to say I was humbled that night by the fact that what, what I specialize in is helping everybody know they haven't gotten that far. Oh, you think you're mature? Talk to me for an hour. <laughs> sure. Look a little more deeply. You want to find some more junk? It's there, pal. Don't you forget it. Now, I think that's a ministry. <laughs> it's a living, you know. But there is another side. I think that's a valid ministry, actually. I think there are problems that God wonderfully overcomes. I don't want you to mishear me. And I want you to say that God works differently in many people's lives. Some people, he allows to struggle with things that other people just don't struggle with. Moral problems, he intends for the Spirit to do his sanctifying work to produce holiness so homosexuals no longer live homosexually, so heterosexual adulterers give up their immorality. I believe that's what God calls us to. But what I believe, in spite of the fact that I believe that problems are solved many times, that there are ongoing struggles in the honest person's heart from which there is no way out, only a way forward. There's a way to overcome many problems. Don't mishear me tonight. I was sitting with Dan a few months ago, maybe less than that, having breakfast with a, with a pastor and his wife, a couple that we did not know until that morning as Dan and I had breakfast with them. And we chatted afterwards, and we both felt the same way, that here was a very godly couple a gentleman perhaps in his early 60s, pastored for a number of years, and we were both very, very taken with this man, just a godly, gentle, gracious guy. And in the course of just getting to know each other, we said the usual things, you know, how's your family, how many kids do you have, that sort of thing. He told us about his children, and he said um, his youngest boy, he um, had to visit a while ago in jail. His boy is now out of jail, but still not doing well at all. Now, when you hear somebody tell about a youngster of theirs, a child of theirs, who's not doing well, what does your mind do? Does it do the same thing that my mind does? 
What my mind does when I hear somebody for whom I have deep respect, as I respected this man, we got to know him a little bit, I know my reputation, I know something about his ministry, I think he's terrific, and then for the first time I hear he's got a son who's in major trouble to the point where he's been in jail, he's still far away from the Lord, and the very first thought goes through my mind is, what did he do wrong? Where's that come from? You know the answer? Anybody else think like that? Anybody else as miserably depraved as me? See, it's so nice to be in the company of people like you. Because I think where that comes from in me is if I can figure out what this guy did wrong, then I can correct it so I won't have to go through it. I'm going to find a way to make my life work. I want a way out of certain kind of problems. Don't you all have a certain degree of, don't you all have some pet problems that you say, Lord, I can handle this, but not that. Give me this, give me this, give me this. But if that happened, it's impossible. I couldn't possibly handle it. And then when somebody tells you that they're going through it, your mind right away goes to, what are they doing wrong? Because you want to make sure that you find a way to live that eliminates problems you don't believe you can handle. All of us have problems. We're committed to finding a way to reach maturity... And we define maturity as certain problems not being part of our experience that may continue to be part of our experience till the day we die. If you're living homosexually, God wants to overcome that. If you're living immorally, if you're a liar, a thief, God wants to overcome that. Chuck Swindoll spoke at Dallas Pastor's Seminar uh, a little while back. I had to leave before he spoke, and I'm so sorry I missed it, because the folks that were there told me there was a very powerful message. It's public knowledge that, that Chuck Swindoll had a man in his church that had just been exposed for some horrible immorality over a long period of time. And Chuck was very impassioned, I was told, I wasn't there, as he turned to the folks and he basically said, if, if you have moral problems, you must deal with them. You must tell somebody, you must come clean, you must overcome these things. There are certain problems that do not belong in a Christian's life. What I'm saying, my first point is, that although there are certain problems that do not belong in a Christian's life, God can give us victory, God wants to give us victory, God does give us victory over a lot of problems. There are certain problems from which there is no relief until heaven. One of the most interesting biographies I've ever read is a book I brought with me tonight, J.B. Phillips, The Wounded Healer, written by his wife and his best friend. J.B. Phillips, some of you know the name. He's a a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, um, apparently knew him personally and has done a lot of translation work in the New Testament, a lot of modern translations which C.S. Lewis read and endorsed. He had a writing ministry that that, uh, covered the world, basically, and he encouraged so many, many people. But let me tell you, uh, let me read you a little bit from his book to give you a feel for what I'm talking about. The phrase, there's no way out, only forward, comes from him. This is a man, J.B. Phillips, Jack Phillips, who struggled all of his life. Now listen to this story for a moment before I read you his letter. He struggled all of his life with very severe depression. He went to the finest Christian psychiatrist that England had to offer. And when he was a young man, and he took his first pastorate, the depression was so severe, he went to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist was able to help him understand certain dynamic influences about a father who was very rigid, very perfectionistic, that led him to having a strong degree of high standards that he always beat himself up with, and loaded himself with self-contempt, and just hated himself, and he came to see that, and the depression was resolved within about, I'm not sure, 10 or 15 sessions, and he was fine for about six months. The depression came back. 
He went to another therapist. He went to another therapist. Until finally, he came to the conclusion that there really is no way out, only forward. There are problems for which sometimes there are no solutions. Listen to what he said in a letter to a man that had written a book on prayer that he felt was a very real, rich book. He says that pages 145, 146 in your book describe the sort of desolation and darkness which I have tried to endure for most of my life. I can with difficulty, J.B. Phillips says, as a mature man and not a kid, I can with difficulty endure the days, but I frankly dread the nights. Ever been there? As long as the day's gone on, you can put on television or get a hamburger or, you know, do something. It's okay, but nighttime comes and you fall apart. I know something about that. The second part of almost every night of my life is shot through with such mental pain, fear, and horror that I frequently have to wake myself up in order to restore some sort of balance. It is only during the last few weeks that I have been seriously assaulted by the thought that it isn't worth trying anymore. I'm too tired to make further effort, and I really do not see the slightest ray of hope at the end of this very long tunnel. It is true that perfect love casts out fear, but it is revoltingly true that constant fear and tension cast out love. All pain, especially of the mental kind, seems to me to make one more self-centered. Michael Hollings, the person to whom he had written the letter, responds and says this, and here's the phrase I've quoted. As far as I know, says Michael Hollings, to a man who's in a level of pain, by the way, that I don't think all of us are in. I don't think everybody's supposed to be in this kind of pain if you're mature. That's not what I'm saying. Not everybody gets cancer and dies. Not everybody gets killed in an airplane crash. But everybody has problems. And although it may not be this particular problem, I believe the words of Michael Hollings apply to me and to you, whatever our struggles might be. He says this, As far as I know, the answer to your problems is, the answer to your question is, that there is really only the way forward which does not seem a way and which no one wants to tread. There is no way out, no escape, which is more than a mirage illusory. Go on. It has to be in faith. And that faith in God, because human help, whether medical, psychological, or counseling, fails. There's something in my soul that counseling, even the best, is not adequate to address. We kid ourselves if we think our skills are enough to take care of the real problem. They're not. He goes on to say, Michael Hollings, writing to Jack Phillips, goes on to say, I think it is useless for you to wriggle on your cross. You are crucified there. Accept it. That'll build up your practice. <laughs> Relax. He has you in his hand. There's no escape. And although there may not seem to be even courage to go on, he will lead you by the hand, invisibly, intangibly, but surely on through darkness, until... When he wills, you will see a great light. First thought that I believe we need to agree on. First thought that defines the, an anchor point for me is that our job as counselors is not to promote a level of maturity that eliminates all struggle. It may eliminate homosexual behavior. It may help a person who's anorexic eat normally. But when we get down to the real issues going on in the human soul... We're licked. And until we get down to something in the human soul that makes us say, there's no way out, only forward, we've not gotten down to the real issues of life. 
Why do you suppose that the book of Hebrews teaches primarily Point number one, there's no way out, only a way forward. Point number two, God does not seem terribly interested in solving our problems. That's a corollary to point one. God does not seem terribly interested in solving our problems. And it struck me as curious that what so many counselors do is they tack the word Christian in front of their label, or biblical, and all that really means for many, many people, I fear is that our agenda stays the same. We're going to solve problems. But because we're Christians, we're not going to depend on secular resources to solve our problems. We're going to depend on God's resources. And then we come to God assuming he's committed to our agenda of solving problems. And because he's not, we have to redefine him. And in the process, we make ourselves the point. God and his story is no longer the point. We make ourselves the point. We make my internal experience of him the point. We make whether I feel certain things that I want to call the fruit of the Spirit the point. And then I find some way to harness supernatural resources to make happen what I insist ought to happen in my life. Is it possible that God has a very different agenda than the one that comes naturally to my soul at every moment of my life. Is it possible that God has a very different agenda than the one that 99 out of 100 people who seek counseling have and don't question as legitimate? Is it possible that there's something going on in me that God intends to disrupt to accomplish a much higher purpose in my life and that might leave me until the day I die, like J.B. Phillips struggling with certain things. The man died, a depressed man. But the man died having touched thousands of lives. What's God's agenda? Have we as counselors bought into the idea that God's agenda is ultimately self-centered on our behalf? Is it not true that God's agenda is rather to promote his own glory? That his agenda really is to promote his own glory... And that's what he's going to do through my life. And when I cooperate with that, that then the problems that remain begin to be seen in a perspective that although they may be excruciating, they don't become paralyzing. And they rather release something even better within my soul that's more useful for the sake of the kingdom. Is that really a possibility? And if it is, then a lot of evangelicalisms are on the wrong track. Don't you suppose if you listen to a hundred sermons that were preached in evangelical pulpits last week, that probably 95 of them were basically how to harness God to make your life better? That maybe is a little overdone, but I'll bet it's not too far. Something like that. And I wonder if that's the case. I told a story to some of you at recent seminars about a good friend of mine, a graduate of our program, who's being sued. He's a full-time private practice counselor, and um, he's being sued. And he's being sued for the most nonsensical thing you can imagine. One night he and his wife were, his wife was in bed I think, or she was elsewhere, he was sitting in the living room, the kids were in bed, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, a woman comes outside their home and opens up a pistol and fires five shots into their home. Had he been sitting where he normally sits, he'd have received a bullet into his body, as it was, it just kind of messed up the house and she ran off. She was a client of his. And, of course, the police came and they're taken, taken away and jailed. 
But now she's filed suit against him for malpractice because he didn't cure her to the point where she would not act like that. He's in a mess. His insurance company may not cover all that needs to be covered. That's a real, real hard mess. I was with him a, well, some time ago, less than a year, and uh, much less than a year, a couple of months actually, and he told me, he said, um, I have no confidence at all that this problem is going to be resolved in my favor. Is that lack of trust in God? I don't think so. I think it's a commitment to understanding God's agenda. And he said this, the only thing which brings me meaningful comfort is the third of three thoughts that I've had. The first thought in the middle of all these problems that I'm having is to remind myself that we live outside of the garden and we can guarantee nothing that's going to work. And he said, I believe it's true, but it's not very comforting. The second thought is that God is maturing me through tribulation, James 1. And frankly, when you think like that, I mean, it's a help sometimes, but most of us say, Lord, I'm mature enough for my taste. You know, back off. Lewis's phrase, Lord, turn down the heat of your relentless love. Love me a little bit less, why don't you? And he says, that's a thought that's helped some, but what's helped him the most is the third thought, and that's the words that God had through his servant to Paul when Paul was changing from Saul to Paul when he got saved. And he said to, uh, to Paul, show this man how, much, how many great things he must suffer for my name's sake. See, what is it that everybody in the world doesn't believe? Nobody believes it naturally, and it's the most serious delusion that the devil has foisted on the world. What is it? Answer, that God really isn't good. And since he's not good, you better look out for yourself. And so when can we have the most powerful testimony for the name of God, for his name's sake that he's good? Answer, when things are going well or when things are going badly. The person who's in trouble and is able to persevere because he believes God is good is somebody who understands that the agenda that truly matters is the story of God, not my individual story without a context. My individual story, my life, what happens to me, is important only insofar as it's part of the larger story of what God is doing. Now the day is coming when God's wonderful story, I'm going to see as fully wonderful, and I'm going to be blessed completely as part of his wonderful story. But for now, his story is to make known his name, and therefore he allows many problems to continue to honor his higher agenda. His higher agenda of revealing that he's good. God is not terribly interested in solving our problems. And therefore, you can't say to your son when his girl breaks up with him, relax, God's got a better girl in mind for you. The boy might get killed in a car wreck the next day. Then what do you say? The boy might marry a girl a couple months later, meet a wonderful girl, and she might end up leaving him and having an affair. Then what do you say? Well, what you say is, is God faithful or not? Well... Yeah? To what? To his agenda. What's his agenda? The answer is not solving our problems. The answer is using our problems to put us more deeply in touch with him so we can better reflect his glory to others. Third thought. First, there's no way out, only a way forward. Second, God does not seem terribly interested in solving our problems. Third, we need to understand what keeps us from knowing God, not what is causing our problems. 
we need to understand what keeps us from knowing God better. Not what is causing our problems. Spend less time in understanding the pathology of homosexuality. What is the effect of fathering a little boy that results in homosexuality? Nothing's wrong with exploring that. But spend less time on thinking about that than thinking about with this homosexual adult you have in your office, what is happening in his soul that keeps him from knowing God in a way that will produce in his soul a passion for holiness that is of a deeper intensity than his lustful passion for other men? The issue is not figure out psychopathology. The issue is rather understand what's keeping us from knowing God. Some of you know David Siemens. His his work is, is good and his person is better. I know him a little bit. I was with him in Atlanta a few weeks ago and he's just a man I'm really impressed with. He's just a godly, godly, godly guy. Sat next to him at this banquet where Swindoll spoke, and 900 counselors out there. And I said to Dr. Siemens, I said, um, if you could say one thing to this bunch of counselors, you're 70 years old, you've lived a while, you've thought, you've prayed, you know God, all of which he kind of just, you know, what are you talking about? All godly men struggle with flattery. That wasn't flattery, it was sincere. But if you had one thing to say to this group of counselors, what would it be? You know what he said? I'd tell them, Every problem at its root is spiritual. I said, define that. He said, people don't know God. We need to spend more time understanding what it is in our personalities, in our natures, in our inclinations, in our thought life that keeps us from knowing God, not figuring out how did this particular abusive background lead to this particular sexual struggle. Not how did this particular dysfunctional background damage the soul in these five ways, which leads now to this particular structure in the soul that now has these symptoms as its manifestation. We spend all of our time figuring out pathology, explaining symptoms, and very little time understanding what keeps us from what God defines as life. What's life? Overcoming problems? No. What's life? The Lord told us. He said, I'll tell you what life is. What did he say? Knowing God and Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. That's life. What are we wanting to promote in the people we work with? Life. Well, what's life? Well, knowing God. What then should we do? Come to some understanding of what's getting in the way of knowing God. Folks, if you hear what I'm saying, it's a little different. It really is. Remember when I first wrote my, when I wrote my first book, my editor was sitting down with me and said, um, what do you have as your, your agenda as an author? You've written a book, and it's worth reading, I think, and I think you might have a career as a writer. So I pondered it for a while, and I told him, maybe I don't know how many years ago, a number of years ago, I think when I was about three, given the wisdom that I'm going to share with you, um, I said, I think what I want to do is I want to write a book explaining every major psychological disorder. A man whose wisdom is exceeded only by his folly. Because it occurred to me that I really have an agenda. I want to see problems solved. And so I'm going to figure out what it is in families, what it is in backgrounds, what it is in churches that abuse, what it is in bad parents, what it is in bad cultures. All these things that 
act on the soul to make these bad things happen so we can do preventative stuff and get parents to do better and we can do therapeutic stuff to fix whatever's wrong so the problems go away. I think that's a wrong direction. I think the right direction is to ask a much harder question that will lead to brokenness. And the question is, what is it in me that's getting in the way of me knowing God? How, how well do I really know Him? I, I read of the saints that go to the stake and I and they, they rejoice. And I stub my toe and swear. And I wonder, do, how well do I know God? Why do I not know Him very well? A couple of weeks ago, I did a seminar. <clears throat> Came back, and although the seminar went very well, and the feedback was good, there was a few comments made that unnerved me. And I spent Monday, three or four weeks ago, really struggling. And I remember sitting um, on the ledge of, in our window in the family room area, and I sat there, and Rachel was elsewhere, nobody else was home by myself for a couple hours, and, um, and I said, God... I, um, I don't know what's wrong, but I'm so discouraged. I don't want to ever do a seminar again as long as I live. I want to quit. I don't know what's going on, but something's wrong with me. I don't know what it is. And I was struggling, and I was saying, God, you got to show me something, because I, I can't make it. And I was crying. And I was doing business with God, you know. And as I was <clears throat> in the middle of all that, I turned around <clears throat> and looked on the carpeting, and there was a wasp. I'm not big into wasps. It doesn't matter how much mental or spiritual pain I'm in, my agenda shifts rather quickly. I don't feel like getting stung. You know? So I looked for something to hit this wasp with, and there was a TV guide on the table there, and I picked it up, and I went over, and I hit that wasp real hard. Ever try to hit a wasp on a thick carpet? There, there's just no splat potential. Well, I hit it and it kind of bounced over there and I figured he was dead and he just kind of walked away. Couldn't fly. I damaged him, but I didn't kill him. So I hit him again and he walked away. That really irritated me. So I hit him real hard. About 20 times. <laughs> Finally, he lay still. Then I went back to my business with God. It's hard to pick it up where you left off sometimes, but... I say, where was I? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Try to get it going. <laughs> Patience of God. And I, was, I got back into it again, just thinking about all the struggles. And about 20 minutes went by, and my eyes went over here. And the wasp started walking. <laughs> and um, I thought, well... Let me see if I can make a parable out of this. Got to get some usefulness out of it somehow. So here's what occurred to me. I got a wasp inside of me, and no matter how much I beat it down, it keeps on walking. There's something wrong with me that keeps me from knowing God. And that's what I want to put my mind to. I don't want to put my mind to explaining my moodiness. Many people wish I would. I don't want to put my mind to explaining my irritability and impatience. I want to put my mind to explaining my lack of connection with God. Because the more I connect with Him, the more there's going to be legitimate power in my life, and the more those things that reflect the fruit of the flesh are going to give way to the fruit of the Spirit, 
And the struggles may continue, maybe like a Phillips or maybe like my own unique form of that. But when I know God better, there's going to be something coming out of me that's going to have power. And I want to not figure out how to kill that wasp, because I don't think that wasp ever dies until we get to heaven. But I want to understand more and more how to beat that thing up. Or just what it is that God wants me to do. We need to understand what keeps us from knowing God. Not what is causing our problems. You all got a wasp in your life? Let me tell you the evidence of it. The evidence of the wasp is that can be can be can be looked at by asking this question: Do we feel more deeply committed to loving others more than to anything else? Do we feel more deeply committed to loving others more than to anything else? You've all learned, haven't you, the obvious thought that as counselors, the real power we have is not in the proficiency of our technique, not even in our giftedness, but it really is in the quality of love. And as I'm interacting with a client, or a friend, or my wife, or my kids, am I aware of a passion within my heart that is more more intense and a commitment to love than it is to anything else? And my answer is no. The wasp still walks. I'm going to be discussing this week the concept of ruling passions in our hearts. I believe that all of us have a ruling passion. A ruling passion that's incompatible with the work of the Spirit. And that's what I'm going to call the wasp. We have found something to which we're deeply committed that we believe is going to make life work. And let me tell you where it comes from. Let me anticipate some material later this week. We feel deeply committed to something. And we feel it with a passion that exceeds all other passions. And where it comes from is this. Whatever in our experience at a sensual level, has felt most like life or determined to reproduce. Whatever our sensual definition of life is, whatever we felt as the experience of the deepest form of joy, pleasure, life, whatever sensually we have defined as life, we're determined to reproduce. And we have a passion for reproducing that that exceeds all other passions. And that passion for reproducing whatever it is that has felt most like life in our backgrounds, in our lives, whether it's a compliment, somebody saying, you write good papers, best paper in class, Larry. Whatever has touched us most deeply. When my father said to me after a year of college, half a year of college, we were having dinner together, mother, dad, and I, and I you know, had been through a whole semester, so I knew all there was to know, and I was waxing arrogantly with all my newfound knowledge, and dad turned to mother in the middle of the conversation and said, Larry is a very agile mind. I remember inside, that's life. I know what life is. I know what my ruling passion is. What bridge have I built to handle the weight of life? I'm going to write a book on every disorder there is. What's my bridge? I'm going to figure out how this works. What's my bridge? There's a godly response to every situation in life, and I'm going to define it. What's my bridge? I figured this out. I'm going to teach it next week. What's my bridge? You all know what God's in the business of? Blowing up bridges? We need to understand what keeps us from knowing God. Not what is causing our problems, 
We need to understand our ruling passions that are moving in directions other than knowing God. Folks, we far too easily, far too easily, in the middle of our struggles, say, well, we're just trusting God. We need to be much more honest and say, yeah, we're struggling to trust God, but right now there's a whole lot of other junk going on. My wasp is walking around inside of me. And i got a passion for something else besides God right now. Thought number four. Whatever the wasp is, it reveals itself most clearly in how we relate. Whatever the wasp is, it reveals itself most clearly in how we relate. What makes you impatient? When do you like to criticize? The, the problem really is not in our backgrounds. The problem is not in our abusive history. The problem is not in our spouse. The problem is not in our woundedness. We've all been wounded, some very significantly. Some of you far more than I ever have. The problem is not there. And we as counselors need to spend far more time exploring the quality of relationship that a person offers than their background. There's a place for exploring background, but the real place where we're going to see the real wasp that block the knowing God more deeply, that's going to be revealed not by a thorough study of how we've been failed in our background and how dynamically all the damage has been done to our souls that now results in this problem that keeps us from having joy. We're going to understand the wasp, the real problem that keeps us from knowing God more clearly by looking at our relationships right now than anywhere else. That's why, if you can recall the basic seminar at one of Dan's lectures, That's why you hear so much in our thinking about words like style of relating or pull. What's the pull you have on somebody? What's the effect you have on somebody? What kind of feedback have you gotten from people who have no axe to grind? Listen to it. Because if you don't listen to the kind of feedback you get, you're not going to get down to the real wasp. Why is it over the years that I've gotten feedback like, Larry, when I see you up front, you seem very approachable. When I talk to you in person, I feel a stiff arm coming out of your soul. What's going on? Why is it that as Dan and I travel together, the feedback he'll give me after I talk, he'll say, I'll bet you felt good about tonight. And I'd say, well, what's your data? And he would say, it looked like you were having some fun. Because, Larry, there's sometimes when you're working that I think you're having a miserable time, and frankly, I don't even like listening to you all that much. I, I, can't, I can't discount that feedback. The way you and I relate with one another in the little things of life, that's where we counselors have to focus our attention. The way we relate to one another in the little things of life, the side comments, the jokes with the bites... All the little things, that's where our eyes have to go and we have to see, not exploring all the horrible things in the background, but what's happening right now, your eyes glanced away. Why? What's going on? There's a passion, a deep passion beneath our style of relating that needs to be exposed. Let me tell you a quick story. We have labs in our counseling program where we try to live out something of our teaching and explore and expose styles of relating. 
at a lab a month or so ago. There was a gentleman who was sharing very deeply, and we spent an hour and a half talking with him about his life, and it was a very intense time, very moving time, very powerful time, and it was just a wonderful time for this guy, and he points to it now as a, as a major experience in his movement toward maturity, and I believe it is, just a month ago. As the time ended, I, I turned to one guy in the lab who I knew was sitting there just angry. He just You could see it in his face. He wasn't part of the conversation. He was elsewhere and just fuming. And I turned to him and I said, I want you to close in prayer. I believe we've got to stand in the way of people's illegitimate passions. And if I'm going to do it for you, I've got to be willing to have you do it for me. I said, I want you to close in prayer. He said, I'm too angry. I can't pray. I looked at him and I said, you pray or you're out of the program. Well, he prayed. Wasn't much of a prayer. Spirit wasn't too involved, I don't think. But he prayed, and I walked out. And he said, can I talk to you for a minute? He said, i got to tell you how mad I am at you. I said, well, big deal. I said, here's a guy who for an hour and a half was pouring out his heart. Did you care a whit about him? If there's nothing in your soul that cares about him, you ought to be shot. And he said, well, there is. I said, yeah, I know you're a Christian. You're a brother. Your way of relating, though, is awful. There's something wonderful about you that's not been called forth. What does it mean to stand in somebody's way as their passions are revealed in the way they relate? Fourth point, whatever the wasp is, it shows most clearly in how we relate. You and I, though, work very hard to avoid feedback, don't we? I would wager that there's very few people in any average church who experience the kind of community that I believe is necessary for deep, meaningful sanctification. The last thing, and I'll say it quickly, it's 9 o'clock, and I'll develop it more tomorrow night. You and I must enter the mystery, point five, We must enter the mystery of deep change by continually facing ourselves and facing God. We must enter the mystery of deep change by continually, not obsessively, facing ourselves and God. None of us has much of an idea as to how change occurs. It has something to do with standing naked before God as he is. And you and I must enter the mystery of deep change by honestly facing ourselves and facing God. One simple little sketch and we'll be dismissed for the night. I can summarize all that I've said by a very simple sketch. Life presents many problems. Presenting problem. That's point one. There's no way out of certain problems, only a way forward. There are problems in life. You and I must understand that as we come and intersect with the person who's making known their struggles, we must be very clear on our purpose. Our purpose is not to resolve the presenting problem. That's not our fundamental agenda. Our purpose is to cooperate with God's agenda, which is to move through those problems to find him. When someone says they're depressed, our fundamental concern must not be how do we understand depression and how can we relieve it? 
Nothing's wrong with that, but that can't be fundamental. Our fundamental concern must be what's going on at the root of this particular struggle that can be worked through and help the person find God more deeply. How can we use the problem to find God? Not how can we use God to solve the problem. We must get our purpose clear. If our purpose is clear, we're going to understand the real issues in a person's life. The real issues not being woundedness, not being dysfunctional backgrounds. Those are important issues, but they aren't core. I've got to understand what is the wasp. I want to diagnose the real issues, not the issues that are causing the problem in some limited psychological sense, but I want to understand the real issues that are keeping this problem-filled person from knowing God more deeply in the middle of his problems. I want to know the real issues. And if I'm going to understand the real issues, I've got to very meaningfully enter the story of this person's life. I've got to look at his relationships. I've got to notice that the story is unfolding in front of me even as I counsel. Here's a brother pouring out his heart, dealing with his life in wonderful ways. Everyone's excited but him. And I've got to enter the story of that man's life and connect with him at deep, painful levels, standing in his way as I listen to his story, knowing something about how to move into his story, how to stand in his way that encourages the process of change. My preoccupying question, as I think about counseling, what I really want to say about counseling is this. How do you and I develop passionate convictions about our purpose as we counsel so that when people are in terrible pain we're incredibly compassionate deeply concerned to relieve pain but fundamentally committed to a higher purpose of lifting people out of their stories into the higher story of God do we have passionate convictions that define our purpose do we have passionate convictions about the kinds of things that define the wasp What is going on at core that really gets in the way of knowing God? How do we form passionate convictions about that? And how do we form passionate convictions that free us to be able to speak with power into somebody's life and say, I have some idea how to move us together into the mystery where deep change occurs? If, in fact, you and I have wrong convictions and try to figure out problems, get them solved, and look at backgrounds and do all that kind of stuff, we're going to end up driven by finding some methods to counsel, some ways to do it, some techniques to do this and everything else. But if we think through what our purpose is, what the real issues are, and how the process of change occurs, and if we understand how to form passionate convictions that lead to a way of thinking that guide us as we interact with people, we're going to be much less consumed with technique, method, models, and all that, and far more consumed with making God known to people at very different levels the way he's being made known to us. My input in the evening lectures this week is how are we going to form these passionate convictions? We'll be talking about that as the week goes on. I kept you five minutes overtime. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.